Welcome to the Oriental Institute's Oral History Project. Today is Tuesday, April 17th, 2018, and I'm here in the Research Archives with Head of the Research Archives, Foy Scalf. I'm Ann Flannery, uh, the OI's archivist, and our IT specialist, Knut Bomer, is behind the camera. Uh, we are here today with Gil Stein, Professor of Near Eastern Archaeology, former Director of the Oriental Institute, and current Senior Advisor to the Provost for Cultural Heritage. Professor Stein received his PhD in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania in 1988. He's held professorships at New York University, Northwestern University, and came to the University of Chicago in 2002. In addition to his extensive research in the areas of urbanism, Near Eastern archaeology, and ancient colonies, Professor Stein is committed to cultural heritage and has worked with the State Department to form a museum relationship between the OI and the National Museum of Afghanistan. And this past year was awarded a State Department grant to train conservators from the Central Asian Republics. So welcome, Gil, thanks. thanks for being here. And we'd like to get started with some general questions about your history um, and education. So could you just discuss your background, uh, where you're from, your early schooling, um, sort of how you came to this area of study in the most basic sense? Well, I think one of the most important influences on me was um, I, I grew up in uh, Providence, Rhode Island uh, on the East Coast. And uh, Providence is like Boston, that they have a sort of a Latin public high school. Um, and in Providence, it was called Classical High School, and we had a four-year Latin requirement. We were the last public high school in the state to, to have that requirement. And as part of it, we also had courses uh, on ancient history. And so that was from the word go, um, starting in high school, that was really uh, hammered into me, and I learned uh, Latin pretty well, um, good enough that I was able to write an obscene parody of uh, uh, Virgil's uh, Aeneid uh, that was perfectly scanning in dactylic hexameter. So I figured that was the mark of a, a good education. Um, but our uh, that the combination of the the, the Latin combined with um, the ancient history really um, enhanced an interest that I'd already had from my parents. My parents um, had always been very interested in history and things like that, and they gave me a wonderful book when I was around 13 or 14 called uh, God's Graves and Scholars by um, uh, a man whose pen name was Seram, C-E-R-A-M. I think it was actually Marek backwards, but something like that. Anyway, it was the story of the origins of archaeology, and it talked about Heinrich Schliemann and Troy and, uh, and uh, the, uh, Arthur Evans in Crete. So I was just so um, uh, taken with it, and it, I, I was reading it at just the right age. Um, I, I think that between 11 and 13, if you can get someone interested in archaeology, they're, they're old enough that they can really understand what it's about, and they're still very kind of idealistic. And uh, so it, it just grabbed me. And I, I, I just found myself getting more and more interested in archaeology, reading archaeology, going to museums. And um, it, simply, it grew from there um, till when I went to college. I had already decided when I applied for college uh, to, um, uh, I ended up going to Yale. 
that I uh, wanted to be an archaeologist, and that was this very strong um, uh, passion of mine really early on. Was there any other subject area you even considered studying as an undergraduate, or were you just focused from I was start? really focused on archaeology from the time I showed up at Yale, and um, uh, I the only other career I even considered was that maybe going to law school to study constitutional law because I thought that was an area where you could really make a difference in um, uh, just the basic rules of setting up how our country works and its government. But um, I still remember in my senior year at Yale, uh, standing in the hallway, tearing up the applications for law school that I had sent away for and saying, I'm going for this whole hog and I'm going to um, uh, follow my my dream and my my um, when I told my parents about it my dad said well you've taken vows of poverty now but not of chastity or obedience so I figured that, that was parental approval but uh, really be, being at Yale was an incredible education for me and really fixed me on this pathway that I'd already gotten interested in in high school was can you remember certain instances that kind of drove the point home for you while at Yale, or was it just the education overall? Well, well, there's a couple of things. Um, one of the reasons I went to Yale was um, that it was far enough away from home that I could get away from my parents, but close enough that I could take a train back with a duffel bag full of laundry. Um, but also, my, my dad had told me, um, he, he got his PhD in economics from Yale, and um, he said that one of the things about Yale was that he loved the most, that he respected the most, was that they had senior professors teaching the introductory courses for undergraduates, and they didn't just fob it off on grad students and stick them in front of a lecture of like 200, 200 people, rather. Um, and so there, you had like the just these brilliant minds teaching you um, at the introductory level, and so. You, it was perfect. And they also had these distribution requirements that really forced you to take classes uh, across the board. And, and um, Yale offered an interdisciplinary archaeology major so you could um, uh, basically really follow, follow up on, on, on your interests. So I, I took that major, I started it, and I really threw myself into it. And in my sophomore year, I had this one class um, uh, taught by um, uh, uh, Harvey Weiss, Professor Harvey Weiss, who ended up being my, my advisor, and it was called The Introduction to Method and Theory in Near Eastern Archaeology. And the thing he taught us that was like totally new and bizarre to me was he would give us um, a reading assignment, and it would be like two or three articles on the same topic that had completely different points of view and interpretation, and we'd say, well, which one is the right one? And, and he said, no, you've got to figure that out. And so this idea that the printed word is not the gospel, but that it's, um, it's points of view and that, that different people can have different opinions was really something that had an enormous effect on me. And it, it taught me how to read an article and um, taking that class taught me how to think critically about things and not just accept it simply because it was in print. 
And the other thing in the same class that really just had a deep impression on me, really deep impression, was um, we talked about this great man theory of history, that history is made by this one great, great person, this brilliant genius who's, um, uh, you know, by sheer force of intellect and personality changes the world. And um, uh, Harvey Weiss was saying, um, you know, I, I, I remember talking to him after class about this and saying, well, you know, you're, you're, you're dismissive of, of this great man theory, but what about someone like the Prophet Muhammad? He just came out of nowhere and changed the world. I, I remember that was the exact example I used um, with him. And uh, he said, well, actually, not really. He said there are a whole bunch of social and cultural conditions within which Muhammad rose to prominence and he was as much a product of that as his own personality. And if he hadn't been living in that place at that time, he never would have um, done the revolutionary things he did. And he said, here, read this article. And I, I it was like, no, he gave me two articles to read, and I think one may even have been by Eric Wolf. But after I read that, I came back and I said, geez, I guess so. And so I, I, I gave up on the great man theory of history, and, and I started gravitating more and more towards an anthropological approach, where um, the idea that you, you can't understand an ancient culture unless you understand how modern cultures work, or how culture works. And um, so that really just kept all the classes I was taking uh, um, in this archaeology major and related fields just reinforced that more and more. I took a course on um, social and economic history of Mesopotamia taught by uh, Benjamin Foster. And that was like a revelation to me about all the things that the textual record can tell you and all the things that it can't tell you. Then I took a course um, by, um, taught by a very young uh, assistant professor named Fred Donner at Yale, and it was called um, uh, the, uh, the Crusaders in the East. And the whole idea of the course was we read about the Crusades without ever reading any European chronicles, but we only read chronicles by Middle Eastern authors, whether they were Armenian or Syriac Christians or, or Arab Muslim uh, historians. And, and it was like being hit over the head with a two by four to realize, wow, you know, this is what it's like to have um, someone from another culture talking about your own culture and how they see it in this completely different way. And I realized this whole idea of cultural relativism was really important and the idea that you have to understand the cultural context and then from there it was a very short step to you have to understand how cultures work cultures in general and then use those insights comparative insights from different cultures around the world in the present time and use that as a way to understand how ancient cultures might have worked and so by the time i i um I uh, graduated, I, I had come to believe that the only way I, I could 
really be any good as an archaeologist, because I knew I wanted to be an archaeologist, I tore up the law school applications, was that I had to get a PhD in anthropology. And you have to understand, I had no idea what anthropology was, but I knew it studied culture, and that archaeology was one approach to it. Because you can study archaeology from a variety of different intellectual standpoints. And you see that just at the University of Chicago, where archaeology is taught in, I think, six or seven different departments on campus with different intellectual perspectives, like from classics or East Asian languages or anthropologies or art history um, or religious studies. They all teach, will have at least some offerings in archaeology, but they're all teaching it from a different point of view. And what anthropology does is it gives you a um, this idea of um, the comparative perspective. What is it that's shared by cultures and how are they different and why they're different? So it's, it's what I like to think of as intellectual bifocals. And if you look through the top part of the, the lens, you're seeing these cultures comparatively. And you look at the bottom part, you're seeing each one as the product of what um, anthropologists will call jargonistically, they'll call historical contingency, meaning that every culture does things in its own very specific way. So like you could take the idea of kingship, and that's an hereditary absolute ruler. If you want to look at it comparatively across cultures, a hereditary absolute ruler in charge of a state level society, that's a king. But the difference between how that general idea of kingship plays out in Egypt with the idea of a pharaoh as opposed to Mesopotamia with the idea of a sharum, a king, is totally different. So that right there in a nutshell is this idea of you want to be able to look at ancient societies both comparatively to see what's shared and what are general developmental trends. Uh, like six different societies around the world developed states, developed invented writing, developed urbanism independently of each other. So there's something going on there. If so many societies developed that independently, but each one was the product of its own history and for that reason went in its own unique direction. And I thought that is such a powerful perspective and that's how I want to try and understand the things that I'm interested in. And, and my own interests were very much about the development of the earliest civilizations in the Middle East from an anthropological perspective. So I, with that as the basis, I jumped into anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania and I had no idea what I was getting into. How did you prepare yourself for that transition? I had a really good summer before, <laughs> um, but um, I, w I was very fortunate that, um, again, my, my senior advisor, um, uh, Harvey Weiss, who, he was the advisor for my senior honors thesis and all that, he said, you have to apply for a National Science Foundation graduate fellowship, and if you get it, they'll pay for like your first three years of graduate school, and I thought, well, that's pretty that's good, good and uh, so I, you know, I put it through draft after draft after draft, and I was very fortunate I, I got that fellowship, so I basically had the choice of going wherever I wanted to go, because any, you know, most grad programs would take free money, and still do, um, so... Uh, I, that was one reason I went uh, to Penn. Um, actually, I had um, three reasons for going to the University of Pennsylvania. 
The first, is, well, four actually. First is that it had what's called a four-field approach. That anthropology, when it was pretty much invented as a discipline by Franz Boas um, in the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries, he conceived of it as united by the concept of culture. But there were four subfields, which were archaeology, cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology. Uh, and biological anthropology. And the idea is they're each studying culture. Archaeologists study culture as it evolves through time. Uh, ethnographers or cultural anthropologists study ethnographic uh, cultures, living cultures or cultures in the very, very recent past. Um, linguistic anthropologists study language as this unique property of human culture that has an enormous impact. And then biological anthropologists study this really complex relationship between culture and our biology and what, what's, what's there, um, how have we evolved as anatomically modern humans and what's variation of modern humans across the world, but how does that relate to culture? Because they actually both influence each other. And it's a very complex relationship, but that's at the very heart of who we are. So I really wanted to have that kind of synthetic perspective. And Penn was one of the, the, the very few places that still followed that four-field approach where they insisted every damn graduate student had to take what's called a common uh, a core program of like 12 courses in your first year that spanned the full range of, uh, you had I think two courses in each of the uh, subfields, and then you had more general courses like the history of anthropology and things like that. Then at the end of the, four, the first year, when you've done all these 12 courses, they give you this two-day, 12-hour um, comprehensive exam that covered everything you'd learned in the first year and based on that they'd either kick you out of the program or you you um, would continue and of 21 people who started that year seven of them were flunked out and are probably much happier people now <laughs> um, and the rest of us had you know we, we had uh, um, uh, we were committed at that point or should have been committed at that point and uh, uh, I, I still feel like that was one of the most intense and interesting uh, intellectual experiences in my life, is just to be totally immersed in it, and then to have all my friends in my cohort, these 21 people were um, in these different subfields, and we would get together, like a group of us, Monday nights, and there was this real dive bar in West Philadelphia called The Tavern, where they had... Um, uh, Monday night was um, discount pitcher night on Rolling Rock beer, which is brewed from the waters of the Monongahela Valley in, in western Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, we just drink beer and we would talk about anthropology. And, and because everyone was, we had people from all four of the subfields, students who were studying the four subfields, we would just talk for hours about the stuff. And, and it was great. And I learned almost as much from my fellow grad students as, as from my professors. And I thought, this is the best experience I could possibly have to, to really teach me why, why I'm doing anthropology. And um, I was so excited by it. It was, it was an amazing experience. And um, I'm really glad I did it. And I, I still remember, you know, 
X years later, how valuable those classes were. Yeah, you seem to mention that at Yale and at UPenn, there is this sort of core curriculum of sorts. Was that uncommon um, at the time in many programs, or was it just done particularly well in those two? Um, well, Penn did it particularly well, and uh, the um, uh, Yale had distribution requirements, but the thing is the trend over time in anthropology departments is they've sloughed off, they've given up in, at least informally, they've given up on the four-field approach, and the, and they've tended to specialize in maybe two or maybe three of the subfields, but no longer all four. And the result is um, that people come out of the program, and if you're a cultural anthropologist, you just, you know, you don't have a lot of respect for archaeologists. They look at us as the, the shop class in anthropology <laughs> high school. That, you know, they're good at wood burning and maybe, you know, maybe soldering things, but they're, they're you know, they're, they're not really smart. And, and archaeologists just are totally dismissive of cultural anthropologists for the idea that, you know, that well, they're interested in theory and is theory and uh, any attempt at comparative studies they dismiss as being, um, you know, intellectually shallow. And so what's happened is that the field of anthropology has, has fractured a lot. And that's, it's, it's really a loss for all of us because as human beings, as social beings, we are all of those things. I mean, you can't picture culture without those four uh, components to it. So I'm, I'm kind of sorry that's happened. Um, but I feel like um, getting that kind of education was the absolute best thing that ever happened to me. Um, and uh, it, uh, it really validated going to Penn. I mean, the reasons I had for going to Penn, they were really rational reasons, but, but um, you know, they didn't in retrospect, they had nothing to do with what happened. I, I went to Penn because I wanted to be with my girlfriend from college, and she was still finishing up at Yale, so I wanted to be close to her. Then I wanted to do archaeology in Iran because Penn was one of the best places in the United States to do Iranian archaeology. Then I wanted to work with this professor named uh, Chris Hamlin, who when I met him, when I visited Penn, I thought, this is the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. So that was in September of 1978. I started at Penn, and within four months, my girlfriend broke up with me. The Iranian Revolution took place, and Chris Hamlin didn't get tenure, and I was stuck at Penn. Way to make the best of it. But it seemed so rational at the time. But in in the end, it was. I'm I'm so glad I went. Why um, you were sort of got interested in this by basically studying classics, right? You talked about studying Latin things uh, in high school. And then you had this amazingly diverse and interdisciplinary young college education uh, at Yale and Penn. Why the Middle East? Why the Near East out of... Because you seem to sort of really like generalisms and sort of synthesis. So what was it about Iran or the Middle East in general that... Well, in this really ancient, the ancient history course that I took in high school, it didn't start with the Greeks and Romans. It started with the history of like Mesopotamia. And um, so it was largely focused on the old world. Um, but uh, they really hammered home the point that James Breasted made um, about how the true origins of civilization, of states and writing and urban life were in the ancient Middle East. So if you wanted to understand how it all began, 
you had to work in the Middle East. And I started off with this very generalized interest all across the Middle East. And it, it um, taking these classes with uh, Harvey Weiss and with Ben Foster, um, and I, I even ended up having my, my student employment was working in the Yale Babylonian collection, which was wild. Um, and uh, it just really hooked me on Mesopotamia as the, the mother of civilizations. Mm. And, um, so it's really about those origins. It's about that. It started, of it. it started off as an interest in origins, like what happened? And, and then more and more it evolved into something just more general, but that the case study where I really wanted to focus was Mesopotamia, but always remembering that it was one of a group of civilizations a group in the Middle East proper, but also a group of early civilizations across the world, what they call the six pristine civilizations. So it sort of widened. So if you could just give us a sense of uh, your time at University of Pennsylvania and kind of how that focused you into a dissertation and then coming coming out of your graduate school career, sort of what, what shaped your intellectual identity and um, how did you go from this sort of broader range of interests and the four fields anthropology into a more narrowed focus. Okay. Um, well, the first thing is it's like my focus is, I don't know if you think of it as like an hourglass and in some ways it's narrower mm. and in some cases, in some ways it's wider and it's both of those things. Um, but uh, I, I, I mentioned how taking this core program at, at Penn really opened my eyes. Um, and I, I also took uh, classes on a variety of things, and I had a, a real interesting mix of teachers. So I mentioned this guy, Chris Hamlin, who um, was really interested in uh, archaeological theory. And this is back in the late 1980s, and he'd gotten really interested. He was one of the real pioneers of remote sensing, and, and he was working with uh, Landsat uh, satellite data very, very early on before he was one of the very few people working on it at the time. And uh, he was um, he was like teaching deep, interesting theory. Um, and so I really absorbed that from him. And then I had other teachers, uh, Jacques Bordas, who was a specialist in Neolithic Anatolia, and he was sort of your hyper um, empiricist and uh, just really hammered the data. And then my advisor, uh, Robert Dyson, Bob Dyson, was, um, he was just this amazing man with um, an, just an encyclopedic mind. And um, he just hammered me that, that um, uh, first he, was, he, he didn't want me to get too cocky. And so we were talking in his office once and um, he was asking me questions like, well, you know, um, what's some of the early evidence for craft specialization? And I said to him, well, you know, I'm aware that at the site of Shari Sokta in eastern Iran, because Dyson was an Iranian specialist, so I'm aware that at Shari Sokta in eastern Iran, uh, there's very early evidence for lapis lazuli and shell bead production. And Dyson just looks at me really intently and he said, that's the trouble with you. You're aware of a lot of things, but you don't really know anything. <laughs> and so from there, my, my uh, fellow students and I came up with what we called the, the ladder of gnosis, which is the very, very lowest level is to be 
aware of something. And then the next is, um, oh yeah, I have the reference. And then the next level up is, um, oh yeah, I have a photocopy of that. And then the next level up is, oh yeah, I've read it. And then the level, the highest level that, that no one ever achieves is, oh yeah, I know that. So I was stuck at the bottom of the rung. So Dyson was very good about making sure that you were grounded. And one of the best courses I ever took with him was just a reading course where he said, we are going to read the foundational site reports from the Middle East. And it sounds like the most boring thing you could possibly make someone do. Well, you've, you've drunk the purple Kool-Aid. Um, but it was great because we read like the Amuk report and that turned out to be the first book review Bob Dyson ever wrote was of Robert and Linda Braidwood's Amuk report. And he said he learned a real lesson from that because he was like really, really critical of the Braidwood's um, fieldwork methods. And um, Dyson had this amazing steel trap mind that, that um, uh, he really critiqued the work that the Braidwoods did. And he said, I, that review was my first publication and it was in the American Anthropologist. And um, I just sort of really um, attacked them for doing, having very low fieldwork standards. And he said, and I really came to regret it later when I finally met Robert Braidwood. And he said, well, you know, you were kind of harsh on me with that. And, uh, and how Braidwood explained, we were doing the best we could. We, and when Dyson made me actually read the site report, he said, read the introduction. And I read the introduction and the Braidwoods were totally honest intellectually. They said, look, we dug this site as, I dug it as part of a much larger project where they gave me a step trench and said, dig there on this one site. And that's what I had and I made the best I could of it. It was when in the middle of this area being transferred from Syria to Turkey right before World War II, we, archeological methods were still not very good. And that was in like the 1938 or something, or 39, very, very early on when they had the plebiscite deciding where the Amuk would belong, to Turkey or to Syria. And it was even an independent republic for like half a year. And they didn't publish the Amuk report until like 1960 or 61. And in the intervening time, archeological methods had gotten so much better. And what Braidwood said to Bob Dyson was, I could have just sat on the thing, but I figured it was really important to get it published. So we just published it knowing it was imperfect, but at least we get the information out there. And for people who are not archaeologists, you should know that the Braidwood site report from the Amuk established the basic chronological sequence for all of North Syria, all of Northern Mesopotamia, all of Southeast Turkey, and it was still in use like 40 or 50 years later. We still refer to Amuk, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. And they were doing the best they could in these chaotic conditions before the war. So one of the things Dyson told me is you have to understand everything you can about the context of the dig, and then that'll change your perspective. And then he said, you have to read the preliminary reports because there'll be a lot of stuff in the preliminary reports that never makes it into the final report. 
And if you just skip over it and say, oh, I want to, you know, I want to read the last chapter of the murder mystery, then you're going to be missing a lot because you can see how their understanding of the site evolved from season to season as they found more and more stuff. And ideas they had at first, they just realized, no, that's wrong. And that's an important thing to do. So you can't just read the final report. And then he said, now look, look at their stratigraphic sections. I want you to see if you can, if there's a north section, bulk section, the drawing of what the stratigraphic sequence looks like in the north part of your square trench and the west part, photocopy them and see if you can match up the sections at the corner. And if you can't, if you see lots of flat lines, that means they're faking it and they didn't <laughs> do a good job. And so he got me reading um, the Amuk report, the uh, reports of uh, Byblos, the reports of, um, of uh, Tepi Gaura, um, a whole bunch of them. I think I, I maybe got through, in a whole semester, I maybe got through eight major site reports. And those things were like burned into my skull. And he taught me how to understand what makes a good site report, what makes a crappy site report, what is intellectual honesty when you're um, when you're doing your work and when more importantly, no, as important as when you're doing the work is how you write about it. Do you try and hide things or not? And he, we, we read the um, Leonard Woolley's report on the excavations at Ur, which was a joint excavation of the University of Pennsylvania and the British Museum. And Woolley's reporting was so good that you could disprove his theories and his interpretations based on what he wrote. He was that honest. And he said, if you can write something like that, where people can disprove you from your own reporting, you've done your job right. Um, and uh, he, he also talked about this idea of um, how the empirical data is so important because even after your theoretical approach gets disproven and theories come and go, if you've done your job right, the empirical information that you publish will last and be useful 100, maybe even 200 years from now. And all of us who are archaeologists or, or study you know, the ancient Near East, we all know that's true because we read a lot of old site reports and it's not because you know we can't read the new ones. We read the new ones as well, but the old ones really have information in them that's valuable. So Dyson taught me so much about how to be a good archaeologist and how to respect theoretical approaches that you really need to have them. But if they're not grounded in data, then you're not doing your job right and you have to do uh, both. And that's something that um, Mary Voigt um, uh, really taught me very well. Mary had uh, worked with Bob Dyson in Iran and she dug a Neolithic site in northwestern Iran called Haji Firuz in Azerbaijan near Lake Urmia, um, right up to the time of the um, Iranian Revolution. And um, Mary, she really exemplified this idea of having a theoretical orientation and theoretical interest, but just being a very meticulous, really, really good uh, field archaeologist and her site report on Haji Firuz, Robert McCormick Adams um, at one point uh, called it the best site report he'd ever read. So um, 
I, I felt like I, I just by working with all these different people, um, in addition to the cultural anthropologists I took courses from, uh, I, I felt like I got such a well-rounded education and, and uh, I learned how to be a good archaeologist, not just there, but also through field work. And, um, and in my field work, I tried to get experience uh, working in the American Southwest as like um, a comparative area for the Middle East where I could, you know, it was in a semi-arid country where all the architecture is mud brick and you have these village-based agricultural societies that developed greater complexity. And I, I just learned how did they do archaeology in the Southwest? What kind of things do they... Um, did they uh, focus on? And the part about doing anthropological archaeology was just completely proven for me because um, I took a year off from grad school just to work in the Southwest and I lived on the Zuni Indian Reservation as working as um, a tribal archaeologist. And so we were living in a modern day Pueblo Indian town where these people were directly descended from ancestors whose remains I was digging up and the kinds of ritual structures they had, these kivas, these underground ritual structures, were exactly the same as what they still had. And the, the idea that you could use ethnographic analogies to modern day peoples to help you understand. They don't explain everything, but they really give you a lot of insights into the archaeological record. It was an incredible education for me. And I learned just to how different regions focus on different questions and how they have different methods. And then uh, after spending that year working on three different digs in the Southwest, um, the three great southwestern cultures are the uh, Anasazi, the ancient Pueblo peoples, the, the Mogollon, and um, the, um, the Hohokam, or they're now called the Tohono O'odham. Um, those are the three great cultures, and I got to work on a dig in each one of those areas. So again, it was like this incredible education for me. And then I went out for my first field work, actually, in Turkey, where because I wasn't going to work in Iran because of the revolution, so I just moved next door to, to Turkey. And uh, when I started working there, uh, Mary Voigt was one of the, the senior staff members of the dig. And so Mary really taught me stratigraphic excavation. And Mary had learned how to dig stratigraphically from Bob Dyson, who's a brilliant stratigraphic excavator. And Bob Dyson had learned how to excavate stratigraphically from Kathleen Kenyon at Jericho. And I thought, wow, the chain of apostolic succession. And, and, but no one ever laid their hands on my head, but, but I felt like I really learned. And Mary Voigt was great in this anthropological approach, because while we were digging, we were excavating at a site called Gritila Huyuk in the Euphrates Valley of Southeast Turkey. And it was part of a large chunk of the Euphrates Valley in the southeast that had never really been the focus of a lot of archaeological field work because it had always been politically unsettled. 
but they were building, the Turkish government was building the sixth largest dam on the planet to dam the Euphrates called the Ataturk Dam, and it was going to flood hundreds of sites. So we went in there to dig one of those sites as a rescue excavation. And um, so we lived in a, a Kurdish village, and um, Mary had us look through the village to understand how mud brick buildings were constructed, how they were used, and then how they fall apart and become an archaeological site. So it was amazing to be able to dig Neolithic things from 7000 BC and, and be living in and looking at and living among modern day mud brick buildings 9000 years later to see So we're talking um, about your graduate training, your early archaeological experience, and one thing that I'm always really curious about with anybody who's kind of coming to the OI from earlier generations is the job market when you were sort of completing your graduate degree and what, what that looked like. Was it something sort of, I don't know, as dire as people make it out today where getting a job is so difficult? What was that landscape like when you were finishing uh, at Penn? Well, that's, that's a really good question because I think we were all this combination of really idealistic, we really believed in the value of what we were doing and the interest of it, we were really committed to it, and at the same time we knew that it was a horrible job market. It was just horrendous. And um, that was something we were very, very aware of early on, and there was a lot of pressure to make sure you actually had publications out before you finished your PhD, or else you wouldn't even stand a chance. And so I, I worked really hard, and I got my first publication. Um, well, I published my um, some chapters in the report on excavations I'd worked on at Pueblo of Zuni, but that's in what they call the gray literature of um, um, uh, CRM, Cultural Resource Management or Rescue Salvage Archaeology Report. So I had some chapters in that. Um, but uh, my first real publication was in this um, journal published by um, CNRS, the French Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, called Paleorient. And I, I wrote an article while I was in the middle of doing my dissertation, but it was basically, what are the main results of my dissertation? And that one, it was really useful to me um, in helping me figure out, oh, that's what I want to say in my <laughs> dissertation, because I had to say it in like 10 pages. But it was also really useful because when I went on the job market, I at least had one really good peer-reviewed international publication, and that helped me a lot. Um, but we were terrified of, of, um, of the, the job market because there were so few uh, jobs. And I was very lucky that I got a postdoctoral fellowship at the Smithsonian where I was able to um, do, uh, you know, a pretty advanced project of archaeometry using um, uh, neutron activation analysis as a way to get the chemical fingerprint of the clay in different pottery uh, potsherds. And so I was able, I'd done an archaeological survey in northeast Syria at the site Tel Leilan that my undergrad advisor, Harvey Weiss, was excavating. And I did a survey of um, 
uh, with with Patricia Wattenmaker, we did a survey of the the a ten kilometer radius around Leylon, and we looked at the early Bronze Age settlement patterns to look at the relations between a city and the countryside around it in the early Bronze Age. And one of the things we were interested in was the traditional model of what that cities make finished products that they trade to the villages, and in return they get food from the villages. So I did neutron activation of the pottery from Telelon itself and from kilns at Telelon, and then shirts that we picked up, early Bronze Age shirts that we picked up from villages surrounding Telelon to see, well, were the villages making their own pottery or not? So I got a postdoc doing that project and I worked with a really just incredibly fine scientist named Jim Blackman uh, at the Smithsonian. and. Um, uh, he helped me, and we, you know, we'd grind up pot shirts and shoot them into a nuclear reactor to get irradiated. And they never called it a nuclear reactor; they called it the Cold Neutron Research Facility, um, to, so people wouldn't worry. Um, but uh, we were able to get like two or three really good publications out of that, and that helped me also. But I had given myself three years to find a job, and if I couldn't get a real tenure track job. After that, I was just going to leave the field because I figured, you know, I have a really good education. I've got publications. If I still can't get a job, then it's just not going to happen for me. And actually, in my third year, I got on three short lists. Um, this is after a lot of <laughs> failed efforts. I was on three short lists at Columbia, University of Chicago Anthropology Department, and uh, Northwestern University. And Columbia was just this horribly factionalized department. And then um, at, uh, in the University of Chicago Anthropology Department, it was um, very, um, it, it was a very tough environment. And uh, uh, they never even sent me a rejection letter. <laughs> I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> um, and I, I ran into one of the professors there like eight months later, and I said, whatever happened to that job? And um, she said, well, you were our leading junior candidate, but then we decided to go with the senior candidate. And so I said, oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> but Northwestern was the place where I felt so comfortable. It was just a welcoming, nice environment. And it was an anthropology department that really still focused on the four-field approach to anthropology. And so that was the only job offer I got and that was in my third year when I was on the verge of giving up, and that one came through. So, what would um? I'm just curious because you bring it up. What did was there any thought about what giving up looked like? Meaning, um, did you have a anything in the back of your head? Oh, I would go do this, or was this something that well, if this doesn't work out, I'll figure it out and retool at that time. I had no mm -hmm. idea. I I just I said if I don't throw myself into this whole hog, totus porcus. I, I just, <laughs> I owed it to myself because I, you know, Penn is kind of like the University of Chicago. We always would joke that there were these old ads um, uh, for Paul Masson wines where I th think it was Orson Welles, you know, this big rotund guy <laughs> with a beard and, and um, he said, at Paul Masson wineries we will sell no wine before it's time. And we kept saying, oh, Penn in Chicago, they will give no PhD <laughs> before it's time. So I was at Penn on the 10-year plan, and I figured, 
This is I, it. I, this is it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw everything I have in it. And if it doesn't work, I don't know what else to do. And I'll, I'll come up with something. Sure. Do you think you really would have given up at year three? Or would you have yeah, pushed another year? Yeah, I think I would have. Oh, okay. A friend of mine had this... He said this thing that was just horrifying to me. Um, uh, his name's Peter Justin. He's now the, he's been the chair of the anthropology department at Williams College, and and he he was joking about some people who'd finish their PhDs and were just he'd go to the anthropology meetings, they'd interview, and then nothing would happen. He said, people start to look a little shopworn after a <laughs> while. He was thinking of like. You know the the the, uh, the stuffed rabbit in the store that just is 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 um, is kind of battered around, but finally a little girl found it and took it home, and uh, <laughs> so it was. I I figured no, there's a difference between being stubborn and being pig-headed, and three years is the borderline between those two. So it's clear then that the OI and the UFC was obviously on your radar sort of big time. Um, you were already reading Braidwood reports and sort of learning from them. Um, you're talking about sort of being in this chain of training and stratigraphy, going back to Kenyon, um, and even making the shortlist uh, on a Chicago job. So what does the sort of Oriental Institute look like when you're at Northwestern, sort of from the outside? What did it mean to you at that time? Was it, you know, did it have a reputation, uh, good or bad, or for anything in particular outside of some of the stuff that you've already talked about? And what did that look like? Well, the first thing to say is like, from the time I was first aware of it as an undergrad, the um, Oriental Institute was this legendary place. And I should tell you, uh, no, even before then, in high school, I already knew about the Oriental Institute and the University of Chicago. And I applied to the University of Chicago as an undergrad, and I got admitted. And in the end, it came down to between Chicago and Yale, and I couldn't decide, and my parents got mad at me, and they said, walk around the block, and when you come back, we want a decision. So <laughs> I just got into the Gibson's house when I in three quarters of the way around, and said, I'll go to Yale, it's closer. But I could easily have gone to Chicago, because I, when I visited it with my dad, I felt like, wow, I feel really comfortable here. And I felt really comfortable at Yale, so it, it was almost a toss-up as an undergrad. Then for grad school, I, I got admitted to the to the OI, and I, again, it, was, it, it came down to between that and University of Pennsylvania, and I ended up going to Penn. So I feel like it was almost like kismet for me to end up there. Then while I was teaching at Northwestern, I taught um, some courses on Middle Eastern archaeology, and um, it was the neatest thing because there were like a group of three or four grad students from the OI who were taking the train up to Evanston to take my class. And it was like so flattering. And when I started my first year at uh, Northwestern, <clears throat> I made the pilgrimage down to Hyde Park and I visited Robert and Linda Braidwood in their, um, in their lab in the basement. And... Um, Linda Braidwood gave me her homemade yogurt. They invited me to just sit with them for lunch. I was just like nothing. This like untenured assistant professor. They didn't, they, you know, they didn't have to give me even the time of day. <laughs> and they were so nice and so encouraging and welcoming. And I never forgot, I never forgot their kindness. And, uh, and the, you know, it's like you read about some legend and then you actually meet them. And I think, this is so 
cool. <laughs> <laughs> so it, the OI was always on my radar, and it was on my radar as this is the pinnacle of the ideal, the, it's almost the monastic ideal of, um, <clears throat> of total rigor in doing your research. And of course, there were at the same time you'd hear these stories of, oh, it's a real carnivorous place there. <laughs> and uh, but I saw the students who came up to take classes with me, and they knew so much. They're so bright and well read, and and I just um, I just kept thinking sooner or later um, something will happen, and um, eventually it did. So so was that you know you you sort of. Before, right before you came to the OI, in a sense, you had already made it, right? And you had a professorship, you know, tenure, you're there. What was the real motivation then um, to sort of take this opportunity to come back here? Was it, does it all stem from this early, I don't want to call it nostalgia, but this um, idea about how important and how incredible the OI is? Like, this is the place, so there's this opportunity to come back. Um, and did the sort of director role change your motivation for that? <clears throat> well, while I was at Northwestern, um, I was running an excavation. I'd gotten um, NSF grant to, to do my excavation at a site called Haji Nebi in, um, in southeast Turkey. I had been on the NSF panel. I had done fundraising, uh, private, you know, from private donors. I, so I, I experienced on a very small scale of administration and fundraising and dealing with, you know, major grants and larger federal entities. So I had some of that experience, but that, that was almost secondary. The main thing was um, that uh, the, um, uh, I think Matt Stolper put it really well. He said something like, he was talking about when he came from Michigan to, to Chicago, he said, Oh, you know, when you get that call from the Yankees, you just can't say no. <laughs> and that's sort of how I felt. Like, it, no matter what one might say about the departmental or the institutional culture of the OI, it is the single best place that I know of in the United States and maybe one of the three best places on the planet to study the ancient civilizations of the Near East. So even though I was really happy at Northwestern and I loved being in an anthropology department, having the chance to, to be at the Oriental Institute was remarkable. And Tony Wilkinson had contacted me about the job and he said, you really need to apply for this job. You should do it. And I was, you know, to be honest, I was very intimidated and I was scared. And I, I said, if Tony believes in me, I, I, I'm going to try this and I will apply. And if they don't want me, I already have a job. I'm a professor. I'm tenured. I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> and... Um, uh, but the idea of having the chance to shape the direction of uh, research and to be able to um, build up the Oriental Institute even more and, and modernize it was like really exciting and tempting for me. And, um, I, you know, meeting with the, 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 the faculty, I, 
you know, really convince me I can do good here because I'm coming in as an anthropologist and not just as a specialist in the Near East. So that I, I, I thought I could bring a broader perspective to it and I could do something useful by really pushing people towards um, more engagement with theory by really bringing back that synthesis of the textual, the archaeological, and the, well, to a lesser extent, the art historical, because the art history had sort of lapsed in the meantime at the OI. But it was really um, attractive, and to be able to do this at the best place in America, and maybe one of the three, I would say one of the three best in the world. It's like, how could you say no and not even try for it? So that's why I tried for it. And you sort of hinted at it in, in that description of your motivations, but when you were coming in, what did you see as the real big needs of the OI? What did, I mean, obviously you, you, you've thought about this at the time and probably also since, but um, it sounds like you really uh, had an idea for these are the areas where I think the OI can really improve on where it's at um, versus just sort of staying the course. And, well, all the people who were like finalists for this position were, or actually maybe even earlier, uh, we were supposed to, at one stage in the application process, we're supposed to give like a, give them uh, some written document saying, well, what would, do, did we see as the areas we wanted to encourage? And I wanted to um, really reinvigorate research because the field projects that the OI was doing had shrunk down to like, maybe three mm -hmm. excavation projects. And I really wanted to build that up again. I wanted to build up as much as possible dialogue between the archeologists and the textual people because um, from visiting the place, I got a really strong sense that the textual people and the archeologists didn't interact nearly as much as they should have. And that was the single greatest strength of the Oriental Institute is that in the same building you had all these people. And if they actually talked with each other and interacted with each other, it would be an incredibly powerful uh, thing. And um, that's not saying there was nothing, but it could have been some, it clearly could have been so much better. I also wanted, I was very, interested in the fact that the Oriental Institute was so conscious of its traditions and sometimes too conscious of them and too conservative. And, and I worried that institutions can become fossilized. I've been reading a lot about organizations and, and, and leadership and stuff like that. And one of the biggest challenges is to avoid fossilization. So I, I realized that one of the best things to do is something that I already knew people at the LI had sort of said they would like, and that is to develop a postdoctoral program. And the reason why it's so valuable is it's a way to bring, to cherry pick the very smartest recent PhDs and cycle them through the LI so that as a, as a source of ideas and innovations, they very often come from the younger generation and not from the senior scholars. So it was a way to make sure that there would always be really smart postdocs cycling through, and it was to educate the tenured people, not vice versa. 
And then at the same time, by having them organize conferences, you would make the Oriental Institute this international center where every year there would be this postdoctoral conference on a really important topic of theory or method, not just total, some total, totally narrow thing about, uh, you know, just pilgrim flasks of the second millennium, um, but something really significant that will be of interest beyond the field of Near East, field of Near Eastern archaeology. Okay, so we were, we were just um, talking about your directorship and sort of what, um, what made it, how you were able to successfully implement all these sort of idealistic um, projects that you wanted to do. So if we could just elaborate on the end of that a little bit. Well, one of the, the items that I didn't really write in my two-page proposal to them of what I would do um, was I was very aware of the sort of the broader reputation of the OI as a place of very smart people who are not very um, nice to each other. And I felt like it's really important to set uh, a culture, an institutional culture of I'll call it transparency and collegiality and professionalism. And those sound like just pap general words, except an organization can stand or fall on them. And I'd seen other departments that were just riven by factionalism and essentially fell apart. Um, like Columbia went into academic receivership because no one could get along with anyone else. And I felt like when I started there, I realized no one even had performance evaluations. No one on the staff had any idea how they were doing, and there was no way to hold people accountable. So one of the first things um, I asked Steve Camp to do as associate director was to develop a system of performance evaluations, and that way people would know if they were doing well. No one ever gets attaboys. Um, and it would be in writing, and uh, you would also highlight areas where we think you sh you could do better. We would ask people, tell us what your goals are, you know, and then in a dialogue we'd come up with goals that you felt you wanted to do and could do as a staff person, and also things that as director um, I would like you to do, and we'd, we'd duke them out and come up with a solution. So I really wanted to encourage um, among the faculty this idea of talking with each other, of knowing what your colleagues do. It's, it's frightening how people can be in offices next to each other and not know. So I set up, this took a while to set up, was in addition to the postdoc conferences, these connection seminars where faculty would get up and we'd have alcohol and food and everyone will show up for that or 90% of the faculty will show up for that. And then you talk about where is my research going? What kind of questions am I interested in? And the whole point was to find areas of common ground between what you're doing and what your colleagues are doing. So I was trying to promote a culture of collegiality with um, among the faculty. I wanted to have professionalism and transparency in the staff. I wanted there to be a culture of civility and I made it my business to just walk around the building every day and I wanted to make sure I knew who was in every part of the 
of the OI and going up into the uh, the prep shop and and meet with Eric Lindahl and um, and get to know what he and the other guys were doing and um, to to really know people and to get to know the volunteers and, and really to build a sense of of uh, community in in the OI and um, I thought that was. I still think I, I I talked about this at the reception the other day that that the OI is a community that's not just a buzzword that it works really really well if people know what their colleagues are doing if they feel like they're being treated fairly I tripled the amount of research funds that was available to um, to the faculty because I really want to encourage research. And so I, I, I figured that trying to model an institutional culture like that and hire people where it's not enough to be smart, you also have to be a reasonably collegial person, that all those things were important. And then the other thing that I think was very important is recognizing that I only know a piece of the picture. And it's maybe even a narrow piece of the picture. And so what I really wanted to encourage people to do is to come and talk to me. And I may not be an expert on everything, but most of the time I know a really good idea when I hear one. So for instance, the um, right after I started, um, uh, John Sanders and um, uh, uh, um, Chuck Jones came and talked to me about the need to digitize our, our information. And so from talking with them, I first of all, I recognized how important it was. And then I worked with them and I came up with this idea that I called the integrated database. And the idea was, let's pull together all these silos of information into one overarching data structure. And then first we'll do it at the level of things that are institutional projects of the OI, and then we'll extend it to individual the research projects of individual researchers, and we'll have their site reports, their data records, their photographs, their plans, their sections, the museum registry, the library, the research archives, and pull it all into one structure. But basically, the only reason I thought of it was because Chuck Jones and John Sanders came to me and said, we have to do something and we have to digitize our data. And so I, I felt like if I could encourage people to just tell me, come to me with good ideas, my job is to advocate for those ideas, find money for them, and make them happen. So it's not like my own creativity, but my job is to facilitate good ideas and do whatever I could to make them happen. And if it's a question of money, I would go out and raise the money. So I, I thought that it, it's basically delegating, listening to people, and trying to create or foster or encourage a culture of civility and collegiality and transparency. So you knew where you stand. Now, doing all the, um, the talking and handshaking, uh, did that give you a best story or anecdote about the OI uh, in, in that time? Well, my, my best story it has nothing to do with that, but it's that um, uh, one of our uh, colleagues, um, uh, two of our colleagues, Rich Beale and Joanne Skurlock, they had the most amazing wedding that um, in the Oriental Institute where they dressed up as Hittite princes and princesses, and they got married in front of the winged bull of the Lamassu in the Mesopotamian gallery, 
and their wedding contract was written in Hittite on a clay <laughs> tablet, and it was presided over by this, um, uh, this very famous Assyriologist, Simo Parpala. And you would think it was just made up, except I saw these faded color pictures from the wedding, and I thought, this really tells you so much about the OI that, one, that it's these very quirky people, and two, that they're so deeply passionate about the, 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 their field of scholarship that they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. So, I mean, that, that's my, probably my single favorite anecdote. And, and it's, it's really sweet, but there's something in it that tells you about people's absolute commitment. They, they're not, it's not a job. It's, it's like... Um, lifestyle <laughs> it's a consuming lifestyle yes there are pictures of that in the archives um, and they should be yes. and I would digitize them because they were fading Immediately. fast when I saw them. so another way uh, way in which your directorship was um, very distinct was your commitment to cultural heritage preservation specifically uh, the State Department grants that you got to work in Afghanistan and we're hoping you could just sort of say a little bit about your commitment to that in general but also these projects specifically. Okay yeah I'm, um, most archaeologists for as long as I can remember have not really focused on cultural heritage preservation but what woke everybody up was um, in, um, was it 2003, when um, the uh, U.S. invaded uh, Iraq in the second round, the second Gulf War, and with the looting of the Baghdad Museum. I remember being at the Society for American Archaeology meetings, um, the SAA meetings, when the word came out about the, the museum being looted, and it was just so appalling and horrifying that it had happened, and then the fact that it had happened because the United States had n not protected the museum, and that it had happened even though people like McGuire Gibson from the OI had warned them this is ground zero, the most important cultural heritage site in the entire country of Iraq, which is one of the most important um, places of cultural heritage in the world, and the U.S. had failed. So, I mean, that day I remember thinking, we have, there must be something we can do. And so, um, in the wake of that, I organized, I spoke with Laura D'Alessandro, who was our, the head of our conservation department um, in, the, in the OIS museum, and I said, we need to be able to train archaeological conservators from these countries. And um, we need to train them from Afghanistan, and we need to train them from Iraq. And so we got two grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, um, each one of about $100,000. And we brought, uh, we, we worked in consultation with those countries with their antiquities departments saying, you give us a short list and we'll pick finalists from it. And we brought four conservators from Iraq and then later four conservators from Afghanistan. And the whole idea, I may be even getting that wrong, I'm, I'm, but 
in two separate groups, okay? I, I can't remember which came first. Um, but we always wanted to bring both of them. And the idea that, that Laura came up with was really smart and was, first of all, we knew that it had to be training people for an extended amount of time, otherwise you're wasting money. To come for one week, you learn nothing or very, very little. But six months, you can really teach people something. And then Laura had the great idea that these people aren't, aren't going to speak English very well. So let's just spend the entire first month with intensive training in English as a second language. And that way, they will be able to actually understand the instruction. Then the, the following five months will be intensive conservation training. And so we did that, and it worked beautifully. And we were able to replicate it for the second group, so four Iraqis and four Afghans. And then that was so successful, the Field Museum wanted to take the program, and they had way more money than we had, so we just gave them our entire curriculum, and they ramped it up and were training like three times as many people, but only for short, like two-week visits. So I think we did it right. And when we go out, um, I, I've been to Iraq and I've been to Afghanistan, and I've met the people, uh, you know, who had taken that training program and they were doing wonderful things. So the training really stuck. So that was the, uh, the beginning of my own involvement and my own awakening to the fact that this cultural heritage stuff, it's not just some abstract thing. It's vitally important. It has real world consequences for people. And it's an area where we actually can do something. And not only that we can do something, that we have to. Because if we don't, it will be lost forever. And that you have to think of heritage, cultural heritage as, it's like petroleum. It's a non-renewable resource. You get one shot at it, and when it's gone, it's gone forever. And as much as archaeologists want to avoid politics, you can't. You no longer can stay on the sidelines because cultural heritage has become so politicized by the bad guys. So on that basis, when the State Department asked us to apply for these Afghan grants, I went back and forth on it. And in the end, um, uh, actually, my wife was really instrumental in saying, you can't let this go. You've got to pursue it. And uh, I realized, of course, she's right. And so we applied for... Um, uh, these, these grants that the State Department ran, but the whole principles that we really focused on were uh, true partnership and not just experts from the West telling you what to do, and then appropriate technology so it will be sustainable. So when the grant is done and we walk away, that we will have trained the people well enough that we've worked ourselves out of a job, that they don't need us anymore. And so it was really successful, and, and I'm, I'm saying that because the State Department renewed us for, we've had a total of four grants from the State Department now, and um, totaling $8 million. And then in this last year, we got another grant to start a similar kind of project in Central Asia, where we'll bring together uh, museum conservators from all five of the Central Asian republics, um, uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan, bringing them all together in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, for training. So I feel like we have to do this. And um, I'm really happy that the provost um, asked me to be his senior advisor for cultural heritage, and he asked me to develop a proposal 
for a university level center, an interdisciplinary center focused on cultural heritage preservation at a global level that will bring together not just the OI, but departments and, and centers and divisions across the university. And when you just write out a list of what units within the university should and in fact more or less do have an interest in cultural heritage preservation. It's a pretty long list. It's like 15 to 20 units in the university just on the face of it should have a real interest in preserving cultural heritage. So um, when I look forward at what I want to do is I'm really happy to be able to go back to doing my research because my research really did suffer while I was director. I was able to keep excavations going, but I fell behind. I wasn't able to publish as much as I'd like to. I really want to do that. And my other great love, in addition to archaeology, is, is feeling like I can make a difference by um, promoting, um, doing whatever I can to help preserve cultural heritage using the things that the OI and that the university is best at, using our expertise and um, have like pragmatic projects where it's not just feel good kind of things, but it's actually things with measurable metrics. Like you can say at the end, did we succeed or did we not succeed? So I'm really excited and I, I completely believe in doing both of those things. And that's, um, that's I'm really happy to be, have the chance to do those things. So we'd like to thank Gil Stein for being here for the Oriental Institute Oral History interview today. And you can watch uh, these and in future interviews as we post them on the Oriental Institute YouTube channel. So please subscribe to that and uh, give this video a thumbs up.